I could not believe what I was seeing. I could have filled the back of his head with 556, which is an absolute joke. Well, it's not an ape, because if the Sasquatch was an ape, we would already have one. What are these elusive hominids that stalk the wilderness? Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning. Welcome to the mystery. Welcome to Creek Devil. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Midweek Show. We're going to do four stories today. Um, three of them, one is from 1896. The other one deals with uh, a story from Edwards Air Force Base. And the other one is a series of accounts that happened in the Sierra Nevadas around 2012. It's a little more recent. but uh, And then the fourth story is the H.A. Miller letter. So, Tom, you want to uh, go ahead and give your information before we start this? Absolutely, yes. And, you know, you're really going to want to stick around for this, especially the Miller document. That one is one that's fascinated myself and Will for a very long time. And if you want to support the program, you can do so. We have a link in the description for Patreon. And if you want to feed the algorithm, you can do that. Just click the like and subscribe button. And uh, if you have any questions, we love the qu- questions and comments. You can do those below or send us an email, questions at creekdevil.com. Awesome. Stand by, folks. We'll start the recordings, and then Tom and I will return at the end of the fourth story. Welcome. This collection of three stories is being brought to you by William Jeffning. It's being narrated by Jim Sower. These stories come to us from California. The first is Eureka, California, 1896. The second is Sasquatch and the Edwards Air Force Base. And the third, Mysterious Shaver Lake. Story number one, Eureka, California, 1896. Interesting old story. In 1965, my mother's friend, an old dear from near Sacramento, showed her a letter. It was transcribed by her daughter, who found some of the usage and language amusing, and she presented it to her grammar school class. No one knows where the original is. It was found pressed into the pages of an old dictionary, but has since been lost or misplaced. Enjoy it. If you use it in your publication, please just refer to me as Jack. I enjoy the fruits of your research and wish you many, many years of success in your endeavor. Regards, Jack, Lakota Sioux, guide, outfitter, guide in our great Northwest. A few weeks back, my friend Jake McCoy and I were in witness to the following of accounts. We were well spent after an uncommon day of awful heat cutting timber. Our days in these woods were usually of a cool and foggy nature, with the heat rarely becoming to our discomfort. After our supper, Jake and I were of a mind to sit by the creek, 
With the next day being Sunday, we were able to enjoy an evening of our own doings. We were smoking and having coffee when we smelt something like a dead animal left to rot in the heat. I remember once coming upon a shot bear that his hunter could not trail, and it had laid and rotted for four days, by my opinion. It gave an awful stench, which would give many a disagreeable stomach. This scent was in similarity to that. We saw nothing out of the expected, but could hear a rustling in the brush just across the creek. Being August, the creek was not more than four or five goodly strides from this bank across. A man could start to a run and jump fully across it, if he were determined of doing so. We saw a large man coming through the trees, and Jake stood up and asked, what in creation it was. As I had just been looking towards the sun, my eyes did not give a clear viewing of what it was. I rubbed my eyes to have a look, and I was not in knowledge of what I saw. It appeared to be a bear at first, but we had not seen any bears in this area, and it walked as a man would on its two legs. If it was a man, he was covered with a dark hair, and long like the mane of a horse, and it was dark brown in color. Jake yelled out, Who goes there? But this man-beast did not make a response. It stopped in its tracks and looked at us from a distance of about seventy paces. We stood, but were froze as we wondered of the type of creature we were in witness to. After just a moment or two, it turned and walked back up the hill in great long strides and with unexpected ease and swiftness. We heard it climb up the hill, and then all was silent. We noticed it walk for twenty or so paces, all of them upright. It had arms like a man's, but of a much bigger size, and greater length than a man's. It must have been of great strength, as we determined it to be greater in height than seven feet. We said nothing to our supervisors, as loafing and insubordination would get you often looking for employment in other parts. Too many men wanted too little work. So, saying anything that would attract attention to yourself in a manner not deemed proper was not born of a good idea. However, an Indian named Joe, who frequented our camp to vend his wares, had told of a mountain giant uncommon to these woods. I explained what we saw, and he said his people often saw these giants. However, he said that most would see them in late night or darkness. The giants did not care to be seen, and were quiet and careful to be hidden. Joe said that he could find tracks all along the creeks and rivers of a morning, I swear the events written here is the truth and happened with us being of a sound mind and in sobriety. L. T. Mills, 19 August of 1896, Eureka, California, as dictated to L. B. Small, clerk. This ends the reading of the first story. This next story is entitled Sasquatch and the Edwards Air Force Base Surveillance Written by Doug Trapp 
The sun dropped quickly behind the desert rock piles, revealing a deep red glow to the western sky, as Corey Rudolph and I made camp at the east end of Avenue J in Palmdale one spring night in 1977. We had been visiting the area as often as possible in response to several credible Bigfoot reports in this California desert. To the east was nothing but dark black sky with thousands of stars and periodic meteors whizzing by. Our objective was twofold. One, to observe all we could during the night, and two, to get away from the Los Angeles rat race. We had been driving through the areas north of the mountains, separating the Los Angeles area from the desert, in search of clues and people to interview who claimed to have encountered the desert Sasquatch. Through the next three years, Corey and I, and sometimes myself with my faithful red-tailed hawk, Nixon, we gathered as much information on desert Sasquatch activity as we could. In many cases, the witnesses told very similar tales of large, hair-covered, man-like apes observed crossing the highway, or looking in their windows at their homes, usually after midnight. Through these witnesses, we slowly became aware that the military, just north of Lancaster, California, at Edwards Air Force Base, had been witness to these desert man-beasts for several years. We finally made contact with three different military security officers, all of which did not know of the others, who provided us with information relating to what the Air Force knew about these animals. Before I continue with this, I must inform the reader that these three men were willing to discuss this with us only because we promised to never reveal their names or ranks, and if we did, they would deny everything. Because I believe in keeping promises, I will comply with their request, but will refer to them only by rank since I do not believe that their status at the time would indicate or reveal their true identity, thereby keeping my promise. I will also add that I have spoken to five additional ex-military officers who were once stationed at Edwards Air Force Base, and they all claim that what the first three revealed was accurate, and that not much has changed there since the 1970s. The first I interviewed was a lieutenant in charge of security in the sector of Edwards Air Force Base near Rogers Dry Lake. He was primarily responsible for supervising the surveillance activity from sunset to sundown from 1972 to 1975 when he was then transferred to Germany, then retired. This gentleman explained to me that the base security was primarily involved with monitoring for unauthorized entry to the base by curious seekers. The base was highly involved with classified secret aircraft testing at the time, and there were many curious people trying to take photos or just see these things. In addition, the base had a very high level of UFO activity, or, as he put it, alien spacecraft. In fact, he made it clear that these craft were not from Earth, and that the Air Force knew very little about them. When any unauthorized people or alien aircraft entered his perimeter, he was to report it to the higher command, and observe. 
All of his personnel had top security clearance and were to discuss nothing of what they saw. He further described some of these craft to me, but I was not very interested at the time. While they were conducting surveillance one night, always using starlight scopes and motion detectors spread throughout the base, one of the guards reported an infiltration in his perimeter. When asked for details, the guard described a very tall man, but not really a man. Perplexed by such a report, he decided to drive to the location and talk to the guard, perhaps thinking the man had lost his marbles. When he arrived, a wide-eyed guard met him and repeated his story. The lieutenant began to scan the desert for the intruder and soon spied him, or it. Through the starlight scope, he could clearly see that this was not a man. It was a very tall, hair-covered, ape-like man walking through the desert. He said the animal appeared to be looking at the desert floor in search of something. The animal was about 500 yards distant, but the scope was very powerful and tripod-mounted, so it could be observed clearly. Both men continued to observe the animal as it wandered around almost aimlessly. He then reported to his superiors of the activity and was told to keep the animal in sight. This was no problem as the animal remained in the area. About five minutes later, a helicopter was heard approaching the area. Then it was seen coming in fast from the east. They continued to observe the animal which continued its activity. The helicopter came in over a rock pile, then the animal spooked. It looked at the helicopter, turned, and ran like a deer around a rock pile and out of sight. The helicopter searched the area, but never found the animal. The two men could hardly believe what they had seen. The next day the lieutenant reported to the command post of the previous night's activity. The command told him that these animals had been seen on the base before, and the public knew them as Bigfoot or Sasquatch. The command explained that they were concerned that these animals may be related to the alien craft, and that all such reports must remain top secret. He was told to continue to observe and report, but not to intervene or disturb the animals until the command determined what they were. The lieutenant had heard of Bigfoot before, but not in the desert. He had always thought that this was some sort of fable or hoax. But he knew what he saw, and now knew that they were real. Through the following years, he and his crew observed the Sasquatches on the base several times. By 1975, they had sophisticated equipment, including video surveillance cameras mounted in key areas. He then explained to me that they had videotaped these animals several times, but the tapes were classified and held under top security at all times. By the time he left Edwards, they had learned very little about these creatures, but his feeling was that they were not UFO-related, but biological living beings. The second officer I interviewed was a major before he too retired in 1978. He had served at Edwards Air Force Base from 1970 through 1978 and was in charge of one of the command posts on the north end of the base. 
He, too, explained that they were primarily interested in UFOs and aliens. In fact, it was through his words that I first heard the term EBE, which is apparently the military term for aliens or extraterrestrial biological entities. It is only in recent years that this term has been coined in UFO books relating to the military UFO cover-up. In any case, the Major confirmed what the Lieutenant had told me, but added that these creatures also found their way into the secret underground tunnels that run under Edwards. Although the use and existence of these tunnels was classified, he told me about them knowing that their importance was a moot subject to me. He said that they had surveillance cameras in the tunnels and had, in fact, videotaped the Sasquatches as they wandered through them. He said that they were not concerned with the Sasquatches on the base because they had learned that they were not related to EBE activity and that they were certain that they were simply undiscovered animals. When I asked why they had not captured or killed one in order to prove the existence to the world, he returned that they could not reveal anything that happened on the base. He said that if they were to admit that these creatures often wandered around on the base, the public would lose confidence in their ability to keep the base secure. This, in turn, would give people the idea that they could do the same. Since there was so much secret work continuing on the base, it was not in their interest to discuss the Sasquatches with the public. They wanted to keep people out, not encourage them to visit in search of Sasquatches. They already had enough problems with UFO seekers or those wanting to get a peek at the secret aircraft. The third man was a security grunt, that is, what he termed himself. He claimed to have seen these desert Sasquatches through starlight scopes on scorers of occasions. This man was only about 19 years old, but extremely military in his self-presence. He called me, Sir, until I asked him not to. He told me that he had seen a couple of Sasquatches that stood over 10 feet high, had seen obvious females, one with a young one walking with her, and once saw a group of five Sasquatches walking together, all over six feet tall, with the tallest about eight feet tall. They were fully hair-covered, except the palms of their hands, and the base of their feet, and their face. He said their face resembled an ape with very small eyes, a flat nose, and ape-like lips. The arms were long and slung down to their knees. He said their feet were like ours, without an arch, as they had tracked them through the desert several times. When I asked him about the surveillance videos, he told me that he knew of them, but was not involved in that. He said only officers were allowed to videotape the creatures or UFOs. Cameras were not allowed on the base in the hands of the grunts. He said that he felt very privileged to have seen these animals with such clarity because he knew there were several like himself that would do anything to see one. However, he suggested that these animals were not as rare as people assumed, but they are very shy and almost strictly nocturnal. They could be photographed, given the right opportunity, but those opportunities were rare because these creatures 
are very good at remaining concealed, even in the desert. He told me that the reason they were on the base was that they knew that they would not be harmed. He thought that somehow they could feel danger or even pick up on human thoughts. Since the officers and grunts on Edwards were ordered not to harm or intervene with the creatures, they could feel this vibe and felt protected. Some of these animals, of course, wander around outside of the base, but these animals are always watching their backs, he explained. To conclude this report, I should advise that several sources have told me in recent years that the desert Sasquatches are still being watched at Edwards Air Force Base. In fact, one officer recently told me that the base security actually appreciates the presence of the Sasquatch there since they give the officers some needed entertainment. Then a question came to mind. Could the EBEs be just as interested in the Sasquatches as they are of other base activities? The officer stopped for a moment, thinking, then said simply, Perhaps. Written by Douglas E. Trapp, Dallas, Texas. This ends the second reading. This brings us to the last of the three stories. Mysterious Shaver Lake, Fresno County, California. Many sightings, four in summer 2012. Additional sightings occurred in September and other updates. Sierra Range, June 2012, around 9 o'clock p.m. Not quite sure how to type this, 9 o'clock p.m., stone sober. While driving, I saw up to my right, illuminated only for a couple seconds, as I was towing downhill in a corner turn doing 15 miles per hour, what I believe to fit all descriptions of a Bigfoot. But as I turned the corner, I lost sight. What I saw with the time that I had was half a stride, pause, look and turn, and beginning to stride away. If it wasn't a Bigfoot, then it was a slim bear striding around on his rear legs with all the dimensions of Bigfoot, or maybe a seven-foot-tall, 400-pound ex-football player playing with scaring people, and he got me for a minute or two. In my mind, a lot taller than a man, and his bulk was proportional to Bigfoot. No way for it to be anything else. I know my shapes. The area was hilly, located at the end of Highway 168. Four-lane highway, next down to two lanes. Small plateau type. Small meadow. Above roadway elevation is 3,000 or so. I notified no rangers. June 24, 2012. The aforementioned report prompted this response. A woman reported that her daughter's boyfriend had a sighting in the region of Shaver Lake. In part, she reported, he saw the Bigfoot in his headlights, crouched down next to the road. As he hit his brakes and came to almost a full stop, the Bigfoot stood up straight, strolled off, then ran up the hill and into the trees. He had an unobstructed view for about five to ten seconds. He is a mountain resident that has hunted bear 
and swore unequivocally that it was not a bear or a man in a suit. It was huge, with a huge chest, and did not move like a man, and that its strides were very long. I believe that he is telling the truth. He is just not a BS kind of guy that would make this up. His mom reported that he called her almost hysterical over what he saw. Saturday, June 30th, 2012. Carla and Manuel M. filed a report that was not a physical sighting. While honeymooning at a rental cabin on Shaver Lake, California, they heard vocalizations being emitted from one side of the lake to the other. Manny M. wrote that the sounds were whoops like whoop, whoop, whoop in a series of three sets that started on one side of the lake and then returned whoop, whoop, whoop from the other side of the lake. This went on for several hours after midnight, three nights in a row. On their last night there, Carla woke Manny up and ushered him out onto their bedroom porch that was overlooking the lake. The two of them heard a baby crying that lasted three or four minutes. The sound was that of an infant, and it was a frantic cry, and very loud, echoing across the lake. It also emanated from deep within the forest area on the opposite side of Shaver Lake. As they returned to their bedroom, the whoops started up again. Carla said it was very creepy, and that it prevented them from exploring the rocky terrain and much of the lakefront while they honeymooned there. Wednesday, July 11th, 2012. Two forestry workers for Southern California Edison, the company that owns Shaver Lake, stopped to eat their lunch on the banks of Shaver Lake. As they were getting up to head back to their utility truck, parked on the frontageway of Highway 168, they both stopped cold as a reddish-colored Bigfoot walked out of the trees and into the lake. One of the witnesses who filed the report said his visual was too quick to accurately judge its height other than to say it was a pretty big fella with a heavy coat of tangled like looking hair all over. He said it surfaced and swam toward the eastern side in what looked like a very strong dog paddle kind of stroke. He was really moving. The two men stood there dumbfounded as the Bigfoot swam out of sight. Additional sighting, 2009. The SCE informant in the above report said that when he mentioned the sighting to his daughter's music teacher, she related another story told to her that took place also at Shaver Lake in 2009. In any case, it was a second-hand report that told of three campers who were driven out of their tents in the middle of the night by a screaming Mimi that unstaked their tents and attempted to drag them off, tent and all, into the night somewhere. They fled for their lives and did report it to forestry the next day. It was also reported on the Internet. Not sure where. The informant was asked if he knew what the forestry official did, and he said apparently nothing, and indicated they were either mistaken or it was a bear. The music teacher had said, though, we know black bears do not behave that way, and we have no grizzlies in California. 
it leaves one to wonder what there is left in the forest that would rip up the tent stakes and heave tents with people inside around the campsite. Bears just don't behave that way. Of interest in that story was that the campers kept a high campfire going at night and that the fire did not deter the attack by the Sasquatches. The music teacher said there were two of them, maybe even a third, but nobody stuck around to find out. This isn't the first recording of a campsite attack. The other was in Colorado in the San Juan Mountains. But around Shaver Lake and nearby communities, everyone has a story to tell about Bigfoot. Shaver Lake History Surrounding Areas the cast of Finding Bigfoot television series was in Shaver Lake in March of 2012, interviewing witnesses in a town hall meeting event. At that meeting, Ken Gentry said his group had a huge rock hurled at them from 300 feet away, on the top of a ridge, and saw it as it was launched. They were hiking near three rivers not far from Shaver Lake area. It was a very large rock, one of the athletic guys on our crew, Billy, picked it up and tried to throw it, but he couldn't throw it even 25 feet. If I hadn't seen it with my own eyes, I would have had a hard time believing it actually happened, Gentry said. October 2012. Three middle-aged men go missing near Shaver Lake region. A backpacker. His car was found near Shaver Lake and a second hiker went missing in the general area of the Sierra National Park, where there were three or more separate Bigfoot sightings summer of 2012. Two hikers were found, but Larry Kahn, 53, is still missing, 11-6-12. Another sighting contains a lengthy bunch of extraneous information about the surroundings, and little about three large cinnamon brown humanoid figures that moved through a stand of spruce trees. The nearest town? Shaver Lake. Shaver Lake Small Town Magazine filed this article, written by Jolene Polyak, in the summer, fall, of 2012. Jolene attended the Shaver Lake Town Hall meeting. Southeast of Shaver Lake, is great deer hunting, according to Bruce Decova, 51, and his hunting partner, Samuel Broderick, 46, from out of state. It is an area south of Huntington Lake, just short of Dinky Creek, off to the eastern rim of Shaver Lake. In late 2009, the two men went looking for a prime place to set up for the hunting season. In the process, Broderick was taking an armload of firewood to the nearby fire pit when he noticed not one, but two dark figures in the trees. He continued toward the fire ring, dumped the firewood, and put his hand on Dakova's shoulder, whispering to him not to be obvious, but to look in that direction when he could. He whispered that they were being watched by what he thought might be a couple of Bigfoot. Dakova, a veteran trophy hunter, had heard such stories, but thought Bigfoot was imagined. He went about setting up their tent, and then cleaned off his Ray-Ban sunglasses so he could look around without his eyes giving him away. Sure enough, there were two very tall individuals watching them, not thirty-five feet from where he was staking the tent. 
The pounding of the stakes echoed in the trees, but there were no other sounds to be heard. The Bigfoot made no noise. Dakova turned at that point and told Broderick that he also could see them and was amazed. To break the tension, Dakova yelled over to Broderick, Do they understand English? Broderick broke into a nervous laughter-like, <laughs> and began nervously singing the state fight song. Dakova joined in as they edged toward the rifles laying on the ground. For his part, Broderick was admittedly nervous, and hurriedly reached down to unzip the cover off his rifle, and loaded it just in case the two creatures came into camp. Apparently, when Broderick raised up the rifle to load it, both Sasquatch departed. The two hunters told me they did not see the creatures again, or notice anything unusual during the night. There were no screams, and no rock-throwing, and none of the usual nighttime Bigfoot antics reported by other hunters. The description of the two Bigfoot was minimal. They were in the eight-foot range, according to the height of the trees where they stood, and dark in color. Otherwise, no additional details were given. Rob Janus The behavior of the Shaver Lake Dinky Creek watchers was decidedly different from most reports from hunters, in that the two Sasquatch apparently knew what the rifle meant, even though the two hunters did not acknowledge their presence. There are reports of vocalizations in that region, and a number of recent sightings of varying color description, making Janice conclude that there might be a diverse population in that region. Janice also noted in his report that neither Broderick nor Dakova bagged a deer that trip, in fact, Broderick said he never spotted one, and even that was unusual. Update, December 29, 2012 Mosmanko 253 wrote December 28, 2012, that he and his girlfriend were riding around looking at property in the Shaver Lake area, when they decided to pull over and break out sandwiches at the dead end of Dorabella Road. He looked up, as the woman with him cried out, Look! Look! and saw a very strange sight. Heading back into the far side of the trees was a man in a furry costume. He didn't report it because he thought it was a joke until he read this page and decided to report it as a possible Bigfoot sighting that occurred on September 15, 2012. In hindsight, the witness said what he thought was a man in a costume was much too tall to be a joke. This was about 12.30 on Saturday afternoon. We were parked, eating chicken sandwiches and sharing a Diet Pepsi, when this happened. My lady friend didn't think it was a costume, but some kind of creature, because the furry part was reddish and long fur down his back and not like a hooded costume. If this was a Bigfoot the couple saw... It brings the sighting total around Shaver Lake to five in 2012. Update. Shaver Lake missing hiker Larry Kahn, a Los Angeles-based attorney who worked at Pasinelli Shugart, has not been found as of this date, March 31, 2013. The search for the resident of Pacific Palisades was suspended in November 2012, 
after no trace of the man was found other than his car. Update. Hiker Matthew Hansen has been found, but no details. A report came in January 2013, but the sighting took place back in 1998. A cabin owner near Shaver Lake, California, reported hearing a pack of coyotes yipping and chirping away at something. Walking over to his window, he saw a Bigfoot carrying some kind of large feathered bird in its hand, walking up the road towards his place on Sweetgrass Road. The coyotes were jumping up, trying to bite whatever it was the creature was carrying. He called to his wife and son, and they also saw it as it walked off through the trees down a dirt trail, which was later paved. R.C. 1998 This concludes the reading of the three stories. Thank you for listening. Welcome. This written story is being brought to you by William Jevning and is narrated by Jim Sower. The following was written by Dr. H. A. Miller, who died in 2005. Born in New England, December 12, 1909. I was the first and only child of Christiana and Arthur Miller. My mother died in childbirth, and I was subsequently raised by my father until remarried to a Frenchwoman when I was twelve or thirteen years of age. Soon after their marriage, she bore a baby girl. I finished my high school education while living with my father, stepmother, and half-sister. I remained in New England for my undergraduate work. I thoroughly enjoyed the outdoors, the ocean, and forestry. My undergraduate studies focused on forestry and land management. While in my junior and senior year, I was employed by the federal government. I worked at Lockwood Farm, part of the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station. I learned about hybridization and agriculture and enjoyed the hard outdoor work in the cornfields. I began to find great interest in the scientific workings happening with corn seed at the time. I completed an additional year in forestry science and graduated in 1930 with an A.B. from Yale University and an M.F. Mastery of Science in Forestry in 1931. I labored at Lockwood Farm for a few years and gained great interest in science and medicine. By this time, I did hope to attend medical school and become a physician. I expeditiously applied for medical school and was accepted to Harvard and began my medical training in 1938. Graduating from Harvard Medical School in the early 1940s, and I completed residency and fellowship at Harvard and began a very specialized career at the time in orthopedic forensic surgery, Massachusetts General Hospital, MGH, in Boston. Because of my previous work with the USDA, I was quickly employed by the federal government. My early years as a physician related mostly to providing medical support to various employee types, firefighters, etc., within the USDA-FS. I also became the forensic expert and anatomist for the USDA and was called to examine most major accidental deaths of USDA-FS servicemen. Due to my interest in genetics and early experiences in agricultural hybridization, 
I was assigned to scientific teams which investigated the physical nature of genetics. Our early experiments determined that DNA is the component of the chromosomes where genetics should be studied. This, along with the efforts of several other scientists, led to the discovery of the double helix structure in the early 1950s. It was at this time that several of our team members were called to Bandera County, Texas, where the forestry scientists, biologists assigned to Edwards Plateau, reported the dead bodies of a strange type of human. The first reports I received were speculating that they were feral humans from the local Comanche Indian tribes. The bodies were supposedly found in or around one of the massive caves within the Edwards Plateau area. When I arrived in Texas, I was surprised to find three bodies, one adult female and two female juveniles. I examined them, as I typically would any human subject, but to my dismay, one of the creatures still seemed to be alive. I became quite upset with the local scientists, but they reassured me that they confirmed all three were deceased. After further investigation, I found that these creatures were not human. They, in fact, had a remarkable rapid reparative process, hence the reason one of the creatures seemed dead, but in fact was regenerating to some degree. Unfortunately, the restorative abilities of the creature were not enough to keep it alive. They were massive in size and distinctly a new primate species unknown to science at the time. I spent years studying these creatures, which are scientifically known as Cibidetelidae, confirming that they were most certainly not human. They were definitely of primate origin, but with traits seen in various species of primate, most of which were New World monkey. Cibidetelidae found in the San Antonio, Texas area very much howl like a howler monkey, quite frightening to hear at night. At one point early in my analysis, I found a great deal of similarity between these Bigfoot creatures and the howler monkey. That was until 1962. In late 1962, early 63, I was notified of a large, human-like creature by the Reading Forest Service folks in California. I arranged for transport of the body to my primary location in Colorado. It was reported to me that the body was found under a large tree that had been violently struck by lightning and blown to the ground, apparently killing this large creature. During my investigation, I found the animal to be very similar to those that I had studied in Bandera County area of Texas, with some marked differences. This northern version of Cibidetelidae seemed to have the same New World monkey attributes that I noted in the Texas animals known today as Cibidetelde texicanus, or C. texicanus. However, there were unique traits found in the Pacific Northwest animal, known today as Cibidetelde nerteros pacificus, or C. nerteros pacificus, including thumbs that are not entirely opposable, as we see in modern humans. C. nerteros pacificus' entire hand was truly designated for grip, including proximal pads, making the hand somewhat hooked-like, having flattened nails resulting in my theory that these northern creatures developed an evolutionary arboreal nature, while the Texas subfamily developed a troglocene nature. The Pacific Northwest, 
the N.W. creature, found in 1962-63, also had scent glands on her forearms. This is more evidence that C. nerteros pacificus is arboreal to some extent, leaving scent marks up and down the tree while climbing. Not only was this creature smashed by the large tree, but she was also badly burned with areas of lightning prints on exposed skin. I notated in my medical examination report of the body that it seemed as though lightning struck the animal passing through the body and into the tree, subsequently weakening the tree and causing it to fall to the ground. It did seem as though the animal had fallen to the ground first, with the tree falling on top of her afterward, but the evidence as to whether the animal fell first or with the tree is inconclusive. However, it is clear lightning struck the tree at a decent height of over 20 feet. Therefore, this animal must have been clinging to the tree at the time of the lightning strike. More evidence of the arboreal nature of C. nerteros pacificus. C. nerteros pacificus also has additional medial padding on the feet, which it would use to climb trees by clinging to the trees with its hands and support its weight. Both the C. nerteros pacificus and C. dexacanus have oversized lower jaws. Both the C. nerteros pacificus and C. texacanus have oversized lower jaws, including massive sternocleidmastoid musculature. This must have been due to their rugged diet, and moreover, their need to crush bones. Their lower dentum at first looked as a second row of molars, but after years of research and examining the dead bodies of these animals, I have found that the lower molars are simply oversized and fused, resulting in massive bone-crushing tools. Due to their jaw size and bone-crushing dentum, it is also clear that all subfamily of this creature are omnivorous, predaceous, and opportunistic. We did find that the female killed during the Columbus Day storm was pregnant with monozygotic embryos. All female Cibidatellidae bodies I have investigated throughout my career that have been pregnant have monozygotic embryos. This again incorporating additional evidence of a new world monkey relationship. Due to my investigation of the 1950s bodies in Texas, the 1960s Pacific Northwest Columbus Day storm body, I submitted to the Department of Agriculture that this is a new Platyrrhini species and that a new family under the PARV order should be created. Fellow scientists of mine disagreed, given the fact that the creatures were examined in both cases were obviously bipedal and catarini in terms of their nostrils, facing downward, old-world monkeys. However, the juveniles that we have examined are much more platyrrhini in terms of nostril breadth and position. I won the debate in the end due to the fact that no evidence thus far demonstrates that these creatures crossed over from the old world, but are simply new world monkeys adapting to their various staged areas within North and South America. I have since retired, and I know of some new University of Utah and Idaho-based scientists who understand the genetics a bit better. Their findings are only supporting my original theorems, or at least I am told. These molecular biologists will soon understand the similarities with humans once the Human Genome Project is completed. As a result, I still revert to the Sasquatch species as Cibidatellidae with the following subfamilies.
Cibidatellidae artos, Cibidatellidae nerteros pacificus, Cibidatellidae somphos, Cibidatellidae americanus, Cibidatellidae texicanus, and Cibidatellidae amazonia. Any of these species found outside the New World must have originated from and migrated out of the New World. All of my experience with this primate has been post-mortem, save a few unique experiences in the wild. To my knowledge, a live specimen has never been captured except for once in Northern Research Station in California. However, the animal did not survive in captivity and died after only several days. I, of course, examined the body. There were many rumors that this captured Sasquatch was somehow magical and could shapeshift, and that is why it couldn't be found. The truth is, the folks at Northern Research Station were very devastated and embarrassed that this live specimen died so quickly after being in captivity. So no, they are not magical. They are highly intelligent primates. Having one die in captivity is a very difficult thing to watch due to the human nature and feeling about the species. In reality, captivity will never be realistic for Cibidatellidae because of their size and complex brains. Similar to captive white sharks, the species cannot thrive in captivity and quickly die as a protective mechanism. I've spent a great deal of my career as an expert for the federal government concerning Cibidatellidae and throughout the world, including the bodies recovered in the 1980s due to Mount St. Helens eruption. We made many recommendations to protect the species, but the DOI has constant concern regarding the impact of such a decision due to the vast number of areas this species inhabits. Such a decision would have potential negative impacts on the natural resource industry. The USFS is now working more toward creating protective wildlife refuges for Cibidatellidae. Others on the team focused on molecular genetics. The USFS and the DOI is recognizing now that the natural resource industry is not the economic center as it once was. So a final decision has been made to finalize the Class I identification of the species. There is a 20-year plan to incorporate all wildlife protection areas throughout many areas of the United States to ensure federal land protection for Cibidatellidae, starting with California, Colorado, Idaho, Oregon, Utah, and Washington. I was upset by this decision because the first location the species was identified scientifically was Texas. I petitioned, and as a result, the Government Canyon State Natural Area will be protected, opened to the public, and expanded in Bexar County, Texas. The long-term plan will be to open each of these designated natural areas to the public. Once all of the designated Cibatitellidae natural areas are open to the public, the Department of Interior will announce the species as an endangered New World primate. I am not sure if this will happen, and the Government Canyon State Natural Area will not be open to the public until 2005, and then expanded later in 2009, and then again in 2012. This will all be happening long after I'm dead, I'm afraid. 
I am currently still living in Colorado, and I have attempted to journal my experience with the discovery of this new massive primate. The species is amazing, powerful, and deadly if angered. Like any animal, it will protect itself, its food source, and its young at all cost. Artiodactyla, or hooved animals, are Cibidatellidae's primary food source. It is imperative that the federal government continue to designate natural areas. Otherwise, a scarce food resource available to Cibidatellidae will result in more opportunistic feeding behavior and closer interaction between humans and Cibidatellidae. These creatures and human beings simply do not coexist. This was written by H. A. Miller, M.D., Ph.D. He was influenced by the writings of anatomist Dr. Thomas Dwight, among which includes Frozen Sections of a Child, 1872, Clinical Atlas of Variations of the Bones of the Hands and Feet, 1907, and Thoughts of a Catholic Anatomist, 1911. This concludes the reading of Dr. H. A. Miller. Thank you for listening. Well, we're back. I hope everybody enjoyed those stories. Let's start with the uh, the first one. I mean, we're not going to delve too deeply into some of these. We wanted to talk a little bit about the Miller letter <clears throat> towards the end of this, but we'll kind of go over a little bit of these stories. The first one uh, was interesting because it was from 1896 in Eureka, California, and um, some of the information was pretty interesting. You know, the uh, the people who encountered the creature didn't have any idea what they were dealing with until um, there was a gentleman they mentioned who came and did some trading or selling, and he was Lakota Sioux and told them all about the creatures and that, you know, the Native folks uh, encountered them quite often. And did you, uh, do you have anything you want to input on that one, Tom? Well, I just thought it's interesting. You got a Lakota Sioux, um, and I think they're typically from South Dakota. Yeah. That, that yeah. region. But uh, but he had some information on it, and um, I thought that was very interesting. Again, that just kind of supports what we've talked about in the past, how the Native Americans, First Nations, um, independent of each other, had corroborating stories about these creatures. They did, absolutely. So the next story, uh, and I can't remember what year it was from. I didn't jot it down, but um, this was around Edwards Air Force Base, and, you know, after listening to it, I kind of, it, it had a few red flags for me, um, and, and I almost wonder if it wasn't, in fact, you and I were talking about this, uh, about, you know, some of the stuff being put out as misinformation. In fact, you want to discuss that just a little bit before I go into the points? Absolutely. Um, I, I'll need to talk to my brother, but um, he was in the Air Force, I don't recall the Air Force referring to themselves as grunts. Uh, <laughs> that's that's normally ground pounders, right? Well, yeah, that that was one of the red flags for me. It was um, when the and he was kind of a low level security guy, I believe, as he referred to himself, and he he referred to himself as a grunt. And I, I'm thinking, well, that's U.S. Army infantry, t- t- typically that are grunts. Um, you know, and I have to I have to ask John too, my buddy John Adams, who was he was in the Air Force for ten years. If he ever heard anybody in the Air Force, now maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there are people, you know, in, in the Air Force that refer to themselves as grunts. I, I could be wrong in that, but typically, 
I, that's something that caught my attention. Another one was um, when they talked about, now I'm sure they do have surveillance cameras, um, but they talked about how that was how they got images of, of the creatures. And I was told something quite different, you know, from Mr. Black, who uh, had information about, you know, the Air Force having, you know, film. And typically that was from aircraft. It wasn't surveillance cameras. So, you know, maybe at Edwards, maybe that's how they did it. I don't know. Um, one of the big points now, this one was interesting. Um, he talked to this lieutenant. Now, anybody who's been in the military knows uh, a lieutenant, at least in, you know, the Army and Air Force and, and uh, Marines. You know, lieutenant is the first rung in the ladder of the commission officer corps, and, and it's usually somebody fresh out of college, and they're pretty young. And he talked about this lieutenant going on to one more assignment and then retiring. I, I don't know of any lieutenants that retire. And again, maybe under certain circumstances, but this sounded like pretty much regular duty, and then that was a red flag for me. Um, well, you know... Well, it could be that the Air Force, unbeknownst to a lot of, to the other branches, lieutenants make a ton of money. And, <laughs> and they can Sure retire. they do. Very nice, yes. <laughs> and all you lieutenants out there, let us know, okay? <laughs> so, um, uh, then he talked about, well, that they didn't, they wouldn't talk publicly or publicly acknowledge Bigfoot exists because it would show a lack of security on the military base. Um, and that's really not the reason they're kept secret. But um, so, I mean, there were, there were just, and then they talked about seeing their faces were, or their bodies. And the description was pretty much like what we see in the Patterson film, except it had no hair in its face or faces. Um, and then he talked a bunch of stuff about UFOs and, you know, picking up on human thoughts and all of that. I, I just kind of, I felt there was just a lot of stuff in there, you know, as, as misdirection. I'm disappointed. I really wanted these things to fly UFOs. <laughs> well, you know, the, the one person's response was something of, of the order of, in fact, and, and I wondered this too, you know, if there, you know, if there were aliens coming down and interested in humans, would they be interested in these creatures too? And it was sort of a, you know, I don't know if it was a tongue-in-cheek response or one of like, well, you figure it out. You know, maybe they are, that kind of a thing. Um, so then the last story was just about a bunch of, uh, and that was 2012, pretty recent, from the Sierra Nevada range. And and there's a lot of stories that come from that area. We've interviewed people on on the main Creek Devil show from that area with encounters. So I don't think it's too necessary to go into those. Um, let's talk about the H.A. Miller letter. Yes, yes, so that one's very interesting. We're gonna, we might be a little bit slow here because we both got it in front of us. Um, now, first of all, what I was told, and a lot of people take this at face value, just the way it's written, and my contacts, you know, and I'm not going to reveal who those are, but they're very... Uh, informed and they said that the person the persona of Miller was not one person it was actually five different people and and they said some of this letter some of it's accurate some of it's misinformation for example uh, when they talk about you know having a scientific name for the creature and I'm not even going to try to pronounce this I'll just spell it 
It's C-E-B-I-D-A-T-E-L-I-D-A-E. Now, we had uh, John, our anthropologist, on, and he said very clearly, in fact, we should probably have him on, on again sometime to talk about this, but um, if you go to look at the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, uh, Sebede is, the, uh, is actually the word, and it says a family of platyrine monkeys comprised of all New World monkeys except marmosets and tarmans, or tamarins, I'm sorry, having one or more pair of molar teeth in each jaw than the marmosets, and usually long prehensile tail, and constituting with the marmosets a superfamily that includes all New World monkeys. So uh, that term refers to monkeys, and New World monkeys, and something like the Sasquatch would not be a New World monkey. Um, so, having said that, that's we know that is a piece of misinformation from this letter. So, a lot of this was created, you know, about the person, and I, I'm sure there are people who have tried to look this person up and can't find them. It's because, you know, this Miller person didn't exist. Um... And it's easy enough to make up that kind of stuff. But then we get to get kind of down to the uh, brass tacks here. And they talk about, um, he says, when I arrived in Texas, I was surprised to find three bodies, one adult female, two female juveniles. And um, he began to examine them as I typically would a human object, uh, subject. But to my dismay, one of these creatures seemed to still be alive. And uh, he talks about them having this, um, says the creatures were not human. They, in fact, had a remarkable, rapid, reparative process. So, in other words, um, <laughs> they were regenerating almost something on a, on a science fiction level. Right. And, and, and I think in the real world, that would not be the case. Now, they might be very tough. But um, there aren't any primates that I'm aware of that have, uh, you know, some super regenerative process. Well, and, and to regenerate after you're dead, all, all the mechanisms, all the biomechanisms that can do anything like that are dependent upon you being alive. So when you're dead, uh, no, that's it. There's not going to be any. <laughs> Somebody correct us if we're, you know, if we're wrong, but yeah. uh, I think that's in the realm of... Um, you know, the vampire movies and that sort of thing. <laughs> well, I mean, and there was, um, and, and he talked about, or the letter talks about, not he, the letter talks about, not something too, it doesn't talk, it talks about, um, now, it's presented as if it was written by this Dr. H.A. Miller. But after you get down to the, past the first paragraph, in parentheses, says there's an entire section here that I could not transcribe, handwriting was illegible. So who was the actual person transcribing this? Doesn't say. Good point. Um, but they're they're leading you to believe that this whole thing was written by this Miller, and and it wasn't. It was transcribed, purportedly. Um, th there's a lot of things. I mean, we could really go through and uh, um, pick it apart. And he talks, or the letter talks about. Um, I also became a forensic expert and anatomist for the USDA and was called to examine most major accidental deaths 
of, of USDA and Forest Service servicemen. Um, yeah, some of the stuff I'm just not sure about. What What do you think, Tom? I mean, I think this guy has an impeccable curriculum vitae. He's got an AB from Yale uh, <laughs> with a with a <laughs> master's in science science and forestry, and it goes on to talk about he also went to Harvard. Hire the man, you know. <laughs> Yeah, there's. It doesn't exist. It's interesting when they talk about how um, they they howl like a howler monkey, quite frightening to hear at night. I I think I've read that somewhere before. I'm you know we they make a lot of different kinds of noises. So you know when we talked to somebody, and I think even Tom that we had on last week uh, talked something like about that. So you know, sure they could certainly make a noise like that, but then he. Um, what does they what do they say here? Said they um, found a great he said he found a great deal of similarity between these Bigfoot creatures and the howler monkey. That was until nineteen sixty two. And that's where supposedly and, and you and I talked about this briefly before, about this uh, body that was supposedly uh, found under a large tree that had been violently struck by lightning and blown to the ground, apparently killing this large creature. Well, and <clears throat> yeah, we did talk about that. And there's a another story that was floating around that, uh, Will, you probably remember in 62 was the Columbus Day storm. Yeah, right. Came in and it just showed up out of nowhere and <clears throat> hurricane force winds in the Pacific Northwest and ostensibly it killed one of these creatures in Southern Oregon. Um, and I've been able to find nothing on that. Yeah, so, yeah. There's another part here now that that does have a ring of truth to it, and we've discussed this before many times on shows. Um, they talk about this Pacific Northwest creature found in sixty two sixty three, also had scent glands on her forearms, you know, and that's what we talked about with odor with the creatures. Most often, when there's an encounter, there is not an odor. <clears throat> These things excrete an odor. Um, probably through glands, you know, similar to what gorillas do um, when they get excited. So uh, that would be the, that would, so to me that kind of, that kind of has a ring of truth to it. I mean, there are things in here that do have um, some, some real, I I should say truth-like information in them. Yeah, there are some nuggets in here. Um, the scent glands in the forearms have always kind of fascinated me because, you know, we don't have them. Uh, we're, a, we're a high order primate, highest there is, and yet we believe Sasquatch has some sort of a scent glands, and obviously, yeah, other primates do. Oh, yeah, yeah, so I mean, it, it definitely has a ring of truth to it, yeah. So, I mean. Uh, that's interesting. Now, here's something that's, that is interesting because, again, my sources talked about these things having kind of the, the tooth structure like the, the Sebidae, you know, description said about a couple of rows of molars. Let's see, what does he say here? Now, this is interesting. They talk about them having oversized lower jaws. 
And anybody that's ever seen one of these things, it's really hard to relate just how large the mouth appears. And it's because of that really um, uh, large jaw. And it says, and it talks in here about their, um, says this must have been due to their rugged diet. Moreover, their need to crush bones. Well, I, that's, that is true, that part, because they will cache bones away periodically, you know, for lean times. And when they eat something, there isn't a whole lot left. So they eat bones and all. And, and of course, having that, not all of them have that um, uh, crest at the top of their head, you know. But the ones that do, that's, that's uh, for muscle attachments for those very heavy jaws. So, Well, and I got a question for you. And this is where just before that, there's a sentence that talks about the padding, the medial padding on mm. the feet that would be used for clinging to trees and with hands that support its weight. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I'm sure the young ones do that. That's probably a leftover. Here's an interesting one, though. Um, it's also clear that all subfamily of this creature are omnivorous, predaceous, and opportunistic. And how many times have we said those exact three things? That they're, right. om that they're omnivores, they'll eat everything. It says they're predaceous, which means they will prey on animals. And it's probably one of their main features of eating is preying on, um, you know, animals. And that they are opportunistic. They're always out looking for things where, like in my first encounter, for example, that's what they were doing. They were out to get something that was easy to find. Right, right. And well, and you also mentioned that you've seen their scat with uh, the plastic bags, you know, like a, you know, grocery store bag. Yeah, which, you know, scat. showed that they were, they were eating everything. Um... Yeah, this is interesting too. It says having one die in captivity is very difficult to witness due to the human nature and feeling about the species. I suppose that's because of the general appearance. If you were to have one, um, because their size and complex brain, similar to the captive white sharks, the species cannot thrive in captivity and quickly die as a protective mechanism. That's that would probably be true. I I wouldn't assume one would stay in captivity. If you assuming you could get one into captivity, well, that yeah, that's that's the big if is how would you get it? And yeah, there's a lot of questions there. Yeah, and he says, uh, or the letter says that to my knowledge, live specimen has never been captured except for once in northern a northern research station in California. However, the animal did not survive in captivity and died uh, after only several days. You know, now what's interesting is about about that part is look at the Jacko story from the 1880s. Oh, yeah, I'm just thinking of that, right? <laughs> and, and the creature didn't live long. I mean, no. you know, it, it survived. I, and I don't remember. I don't think they said exactly how long they had it in captivity, but uh, when they took it to England, it died on board the ship. Yes, yes. Well, that kind of wraps it up for this piece, Tom. Um, any final thoughts before we close on this one? Well, I just, this is also a letter that's fascinated me in tackling the, the, uh, you know, the, I guess the, it's seeded with fake news going all the way back to whenever this letter was there written. An so, e and even the anatomist hit, they name at the end, you know, was in fact a real person and, and that information is real. So they, 
And that's what I was told. Again, this, this letter was put out as a means of misinformation because it has kernels of truth throughout it, but much of it is contrived. So, yeah, you know, yeah. don't take it at face value, folks. All right. Well, that'll do it for the midweek show, folks. Uh, stay tuned for the weekend show. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures, please contact us at williamjevning at yahoo.com. That's William, J-E-V-N-I-N-G at yahoo.com. All communication is confidential. Join us for another program next week. And until then, keep your eyes open out there.